It was quite literally the siren call from the mermaid as the sailor passes by on his ship. They got the right mermaid going past the right ship. These were the words of Roy Hodgson as he accepted his final job in management at Watford, age 74. Ever the Riddler, genius to some, disaster to others, misunderstood by perhaps the majority. This episode, we tell the story of Roy Hodgson's cultured, decorated and at times, frankly, insane 46 year managerial career via 11 players who represented him. This 11 is our ode to Roy. Arthur. Good morning, Ben. 46 years. That is truly staggering. It's a lot of years. Um, I can't imagine 46 years generally. I'm, I'm not 46 years old, but to spend that amount of time getting absolutely ribbed by fans on yeah. the touchline across the world, as it turns out, it's quite an achievement. But you say getting ribbed by fans, but one thing I discovered during this uh, this odyssey of research is that he was immensely successful in quite a lot of places, um, managing in some bizarre destinations uh, internationally, club sides, all sorts from Roy. We're playing his favoured 4-4-2 formation uh, in respect to the big man. I'm excited to discuss this one. Me too. I think he was underrated at times and we'll explain why. Um, any players that played under Roy Hodgson we're looking for today at 11pod. It's the word, not the number. Your nominations, I was going to say they count. They probably won't make it into the 11, but we like to hear them anyway. Roy's goalkeeper, Ben. Today, it's Lennart Leung. Oh my gosh! I mean, yeah. yeah. Was uh, he was he some kind of some kind of Scandi yes, legend? He was. Um, I, I haven't heard of him either, Arthur. But w- what it does allow me to do is to hark back to the beginning of Roy Hodgson's managerial career and perhaps the most unbelievable story: his CV. Um, Lennart Jung, this is the Swedish goalkeeper who helped a 28-year-old, Roy Hodgson, 28, to win the Swedish league title as a manager at the first time of asking. He was at Rank Outsiders Halmstadt's BK. That's absolutely insane. Are they they a club that sort of has a reasonably proud history in the uh, Swedish leagues or not? Well, not really. They're from a sleepy town in southern Sweden. This was in 1976 that Hodgson took charge um, of a cobbled together bunch of young upstarts and old cronies who'd narrowly avoided relegation from the top flight the previous year. uh, And they were seen as favourites for the drop in 1976. Hodgson got the best out of his lot. He made some astute positional changes, including switching the experienced right-back Hans Salander into midfield. And he achieved perhaps the most unlikely title win in Swedish football history, making a name for himself as a young manager. Leung, who was the solid goalkeeper, who would go on to become a Halmstadt legend, spoke so highly of Hodgson. He said he won us over immediately because he knew everyone's name from the off. Roy explained his ideas about how he wanted to teach us a new system and how he wanted us to do it on the training grounds and not in the classroom. He drilled us until the movements became automatic. And so the amount of respect from Swedish players that this 28-year-old upstart got when he turned up on the scene was 
was absolutely amazing. And he'd actually win two titles with Helmstadt before moving on. I'm seeing as well that Swedish comedians Alfredson and Danielson made a skit about him called Footballstranera Bob Lindemann. (laughs) (laughs) Bob Lindemann. Roy Hodgson. Yeah. I, I think they didn't, they call him something like Uncle Roy in Sweden. Possibly. I mean, I didn't read that, but they could, they might as well have done. Oh, I've, I've, I've been to Sweden. It's a very friendly place. They're quite serious people. I don't know whether they'd adopt Uncle Roy, but, but maybe they did. I, I guess Leung himself, in case you want a bit more information on him, he played for Halmstads for 13 seasons. I think pretty much his entire professional career in the 70s. He was the number one from 1972 to 1980, and he played a club record of 206 consecutive games, which is remarkable, really. Um, After retiring, he became a coach at Halmstadt. He just couldn't get enough. And he probably peaked in his career when he was a goalkeeping coach with the Swedish national team. Um, But he is considered really the Halmstadt's club legend. And so um, whilst... Neither of us know who he is. Um, I think he's probably the pick of the bunch for that initial Roy Hodgson managerial spell. An excellent pick. That's a really good one. And um, I I noticed you've got the left back. So I think we're going to split with tradition once more. And I'm going to give you a right back. Oh, okay. And this is a foray of Roy Hodgson into international management. Um, He was in charge of Finland from January 2006 to November 2007. And he had a bit of a defensive general at right back, and that was Petri Parsonen. <laughs> yeah, do you know, I really, I weirdly know that name, but I don't think he was Premier League, was he? He was Premier League. He was? Um, very briefly, to be okay. fair. He had, a, he had a loan at Portsmouth in 2004. Oh. Um, so that's why his name might ring a bell. Okay. Roy was appointed and tasked with improving Finland's defensive stability, um, something which I think he undoubtedly succeeded in. They were incredibly hard to beat, um, but ultimately they just weren't potent enough offensively. They had the likes of Jonathan Johansson uh, and an ageing Yari Littmanen, um, but they just couldn't score enough goals. Uh, ultimately, They did almost qualify for Euro 2008, which would have been the country's first major tournament. Um, They finished fourth, just being edged out by Serbia on goal difference in a group that contained Portugal, Poland and Belgium, as well as Serbia. And actually, Roy was knighted in 2012 for his services to Finnish football, which I love. (laughs) I think I've actually seen a picture of that in my research and he looks unbelievably regal while accepting that award. Good old Roy, he should look regal because it's quite an accolade. I mentioned that defensive stability uh, and I just absolutely love this. That of Roy's last six games as Finland manager, five of them were drawn nil-nil. <laughs> <laughs> this is Jonathan almost... just couldn't find the back of the net. Yeah, this is struggling to fit the ode to Roy mantle. Uh, as we describe how boring his football was. Well, not just boring, but structurally sound. I mean, <laughs> Roy was Roy was known for for instigating, you know, quite aggressive counter-attacking football. And obviously he wasn't able to do that on the international stage. But I mean, it was difficult opposition, you know, of those draws. One of them was against Serbia. 
against Poland, against Belgium, against Spain, against Portugal. They were all quality teams. Um, and perhaps they just came in a in a flurry for him where obviously he wasn't able to um, attack with the, the potency that we know he wanted to instigate. Parsonen was Roy's starting right back, though he typically played centre back at club level. He achieved some success with Finland internationally. He finished runner-up to Latvia in the 2012 Baltic Cup. They only participated twice as a guest. Iceland won it last year, and they were a guest. So I don't think Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia will be inviting anyone else to to participate in it. Typically, it's Lithuania and Latvia jostling for the title, and I think Estonia have won it like twice. Uh, so um, another to add to our uh, interesting cup 11s. Parsonen was also captain when Sammy Hoopier and Yari Lippmanen, um didn't play. Uh, so he was clearly respected by Roy. As a, as a player at club level, he spent some time at Ajax, followed by that loan, as I said, at Portsmouth. He did impress sufficiently uh, that Harry Redknapp was interested in purchasing him full time. But Ajax at asking price was sadly too high. Uh, so he spent the majority of his club career um, at Werder Bremen in the Bundesliga. That's where you may know him from. Um, he became a bit of a club legend there, uh, including an incredibly successful 2008-09 season where he was the DFP Pokal winner and UEFA Cup runner-up. Um, so a bit of a legend. And I just wanted to shine a light on Roy's international um, career. Obviously, he had a few high-profile jobs elsewhere that we'll we'll go on to discuss. But the kind of role as an international manager, I think, suits Roy immensely well. I know what you mean, Arthur. He's the kind of arm around the shoulder, crack a bit of a gag about mermaids kind of of bloke, (laughs) isn't he, Roy? Uh, I do wonder, though, you know, in a way, that was Finland's golden generation. They had... Premier League players are plenty, you know, the ones you mentioned, of course, Mikhail Forsell, Timu Tainio. And so maybe not to qualify for a major tournament at that stage was a little bit of a failure. What do you think? I think it maybe came down to the the difficulty of the group that they were in, because, yes, they had a few quality players, but they were playing against some absolutely class teams. You know, the likes of, of Portugal and Belgium had their own golden generations. Well, alongside Petri is a serial Roy Hodgson name. It's Stefan Honshaw. <laughs> Stefan Honshaw. Oh, it, is this Liverpool? Well, yeah. Is it is it Honshaw oh. or Henchos? I, I never quite know. Honshaw. Honshaw. Um, anyway, whatever he's called, he was a Swiss six-foot efficient centre-half, gifted with an excellent reading of the game and immense bravery in blocking. And that made up for his lack of physical presence, really, being only six foot. Um, he played for Hodgson in the Swiss national team and with Blackburn Rovers, Roy of the Rovers, if you will, uh, where he was bought for three million and played a pivotal role in the club's sixth place finish uh, after they were trying to replicate their former title glory. He's probably most famous, though, for his time at Liverpool, Honcho, where he formed an effective partnership with Sammy Hoopier and won an FA Cup, two League Cups, a Charity Shield, a UEFA Cup and a UEFA Super Cup, playing a controversial role in two of those finals. He made an uncharacteristic mistake, causing the 2001 League Cup final against Birmingham to go into extra time. 
and a handball save on the line preserved the scoreline in the FA Cup triumph against Arsenal. But I've obviously mentioned Honshou playing for Hodgson at Switzerland and also at Blackburn, but I wanted to talk about where Hodgson first encountered Honshou, and that was at Swiss side Neuchâtel Jamax. Uh, this is where Honshou was a youngster. Uh, Jamax were better than they are now. They've actually also brought the likes of Johan Juru and Papa Bupa Diop through. Wow. Um, and the side from Neuchâtel would probably count as another Hodgson success story. Uh, in his first season in charge, Jamax finished third in both the league and the subsequent championship playoff league, qualifying for the 1991-92 UEFA Cup. In the following season, Jamax finished fifth in the league and then finished second in the championship playoff, um, missing out on the title to Sion by just two points. In Europe, he led Jamax to a 2-0 win on aggregate over Floriana and then a 5-2 aggregate win over Celtic. And in the third round, Jamax were drawn against Real Madrid. Incredibly, Hodgson led them to win their home tie 1-0 against the Spanish Giants, Uh, but they were eliminated after a 4-0 defeat at the Bernabeu. And in a strange twist, it was that 4-0 defeat that unearthed Stefan Honshow. Aged just 17, Hodgson brought on the defender for his Jamax debut at the Bernabeu. So he obviously saw something in Stefan, at such a young age, and he was repaid in many ways. Uh, Blackburn would ultimately battle off Manchester United for Honcho's signature several years later. Definitely the Hodgson effect and uh, Stefan's view of his former boss that did it. So Honcho was uncovered by Roy and went on to have a really successful career. A couple of um, legends of the game that also played for Neuchatel are Brown and Day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh Harris Seferovic actually played for them as well. Yeah, I did and, read um, that one. That was um yeah. yeah, not a team that I'm hugely familiar with, but um certainly they enjoyed some of their most successful years under the English boss. They're now ailing somewhat in the Swiss Challenge League. Uh, I have to say I think their logo is quite kind of intimidating. It looks almost like a kind of maybe like a fascist party logo. <laughs> Lovely. Oh, good. <laughs> good, yeah, on, good on Neuchatel Samax. <laughs> <laughs> Alongside him at centre-back is a true legend of the game. It's Breda Hangerland. Oh, love Breda. Having been promoted to the Premier League in 2001... Uh, Fulham enjoyed a few seasons of relative comfort before things really started to change in 2006-07 when they were sent perilously close to relegation and Chris Coleman lost his job. Laurie Sanchez just about kept them up, uh, but he was relieved of his post in December of the following season with Fulham in the bottom three and two wins from 17. Roy Hodgson arrived fairly unheralded as his replacement and found a team that severely lacked in defensive stability. Now, this was a man who could find defensive stability over, <laughs> over anything else. Um, so he retrieved his contact book and plucked a player from his former club, Viking, in Norway. That's Breda Hangeland. A little bit on Viking. 
Viking Stavanger, uh, who are nicknamed Demorkablar. Um, fun little story about them. They originally played in white in 1899, but to avoid colour bleeding from their red and yellow club badge whilst cleaning the white shirts, uh, the badge had to be removed from each shirt prior to washing and then reattached afterwards. Oh, my goodness. Uh, they therefore changed to dark blue, and that nickname, Demorkablar, is um, the, the dark blues. Uh, so they're now nicknamed after their colour. Roy's time at Viking was unspectacular, though he obtained 46% win ratio. He didn't win any trophies. Um, But when he got to Fulham, he did remember the Norwegian giant at the centre of their defence. And so he brought him to Fulham. Breda was a man-mountain, six-foot-six centre-back, whose previous role at defensive midfield meant he was comfortable with the ball at his feet. Um, Things started terribly with Fulham picking up just nine points from Hodgson's first 13 league games. However, they retained the faith and a run of 12 points from the last five games of the season, uh, including a 3-2 win over Man City, having been 2-0 down with 20 minutes remaining, uh, secured their survival, um, which was confirmed with a final day win over Pompey. Roy went on to become a Fulham club legend. He secured a seventh place league finish the following season with Hangeland thriving alongside Aaron Hughes at the back. They then managed to top that with their glorious cup run in 2010 to the final of the Europa League. Pretty sure we talked about that in another episode. That was just an incredible run and the stuff of dreams for Fulham fans, really. It really was. They lost in the final to an Atleti side that boasted a front four of Reyes, Forlan, Aguero and Simao. Mm. What, what a Europa League strike force that is. Despite eventually losing Roy, uh, things would meander along nicely until a disastrous 2013-14 season saw Fulham relegated under Felix Magat. Hangeland had his injury problems that season. And as as we all well know, Felix Magat famously told him to remedy it by rubbing cheese on the affected <laughs> area. Um, and I'd just like to finish on Breda with um, with his chant, because I just think this is exceptional. I don't know whether this was in the stadium or whether it was reproduced in a record format, but I feel like this belongs on on Spotify or all other streaming, streaming right. platforms. Okay. Um, it goes, oh, big Breda, hang a lang, whoa, big Breda, hang a lang, he jumps so high, you know, that's no lie. Hang a lang, he's so rock steady. Hang a lang, and when you see him on the telly, hang a lang. Oh, big bread. That is oh, amazing. I just absolutely love that. That's so good. I mean, you have to have a certain level of musicality to come out with that on a touchline, don't you? But um, yeah, you do a little bit. Yeah, big I, I fan. Just, I think it would have been rocking the terraces of Craven Cottage. Yeah, I mean, he was a, a giant defender and a great one at that. And I, I do think the spell at Fulham is probably Roy Hodgson's greatest achievement, frankly. I saw he got a, a kind of lifetime achievement award from Fulham the other day. And I know they see him as an absolute hero. So um, amazing how a manager can divide opinion like that. But but certainly they were some of Hodgson's best days of his career. At left back, Alessandro Pistoni. Oh, yes. I th- Has he been in a, an 11 before? No, I don't think so. We may have mentioned him because he's so 11, it's untrue. <laughs> but um, I don't think he's actually made it into one. 
This is probably the most high-profile club on Hodgson's CV. He managed Inter Milan at a time when Serie A was in its heyday in the late 90s. Uh, And he managed them twice, first between 95 and 97, and then again as caretaker in 1999. Looking through the players he had at his disposal in that initial two-season spell, Javier Zanetti, Paul Ince, Yuri Jorkaev, good solid players, but technically maybe not the very best. Um, But one player jumped out at me, and that was Pistoni, uh, because what was he doing there? Being a Naughties fan, predominantly, I remember the tail end of Pistoni's spell at Newcastle and his seven-year stint at Everton. Uh, and I don't remember him being a standout for either of them. Um, more so a kind of long-haired, indistinct fullback prone to a string of injury problems. So I must admit, it surprised me that he played for Inter Milan. He started his career at Solbiatesi and AC Crevalcore, two small Italian teams in the lower tiers. Um, But he was spotted by Hodgson when at Venezia and brought to his hometown club. He became a consistent on Hodgson's team sheets, making 46 appearances in a season, the most he managed actually in a single season throughout his career. Uh, And what's more remarkable The previous season, Hodgson had let Roberto Carlos go. (laughs) He'd upset Roberto Carlos by playing him out of position on the left wing, as the English boss didn't think the Brazilian was a natural defender and therefore brought in Alessandro Pistoni to replace him. (laughs) In hindsight, that, that seems like a terrible call from Hodgson. Despite this peculiarity at left-back, in truth, it was a rebuilding phase for Inter and Hodgson did achieve moderate success. He qualified the Milan side for the UEFA Cup, despite having taken over when they'd been bottom of the league. Uh, He followed that up with a third-place finish and reached the final of the 97 UEFA Cup, only to lose out on penalties to Schalke. And in some ways, Hodgson was the catalyst for Inter becoming a powerhouse of European football. He took over amidst uncertainty and he steadied the ship. Uh, And club president Massimo Moratti says of him, when he came in, we were in trouble and things appeared dark. He didn't panic. He was calm and he made us calm. Disaster was averted at the most important time. And everyone at Inter will remember him for that and his contribution. Are you wondering by any chance, Arthur, what Alessandro Pistoni did once he retired? Of course, I always do. Well, since retiring from football, Pistoni has made a number of appearances on the Italian poker circuit and participated in the eighth annual Night of Aces event in 2010. (laughs) Uh, He also owns and runs a restaurant in Milan near Central Station, which specialises in piadina, which is a type of flatbread. Oh, very good. Gosh, he can add to the uh, the restaurant capabilities of our uh, our former eleven players. Um, We've got I mean, such a group forming. Who was the one who who did pancakes? That was Ken Moncow. Ken Moncow. We could potentially get them all all together to create some kind of celebratory dish um, for us all. Yeah, um, I mean, even just off the top of my head, I've got Ken Moncow, Sebastian Schemmel, now Alessandro Pistoni. Not to mention all the guys working at Super Subs. Yeah, Super Subs. <laughs> Brilliant play by Boamorte. This is Vault off on show, off the crossbar. Moritz Vault almost scoring. The deflection for Moncho 
took it onto the crossbar. Many fans will know Roy Hodgson as a former England manager. So let's take a short break from naming our 11 uh, to think about that for a moment and play a game, Arthur, of play your caps right. Now, this is, of course, based on Bruce Forsyth's classic game show. I I think when we talk about England managers, we tend to focus on the major tournaments. Uh, And Roy's England career, by that regard, was pretty shocking. Uh, 2012 Euros, they lost in the quarterfinals to Italy. 2014 World Cup group stage exit. And 2016 Euros, we obviously lost in the last 16 to Iceland. So I started looking at some of the players that Roy had at his disposal. Uh, And in this game of play your caps right, I need you to say higher or lower uh, for the amount of caps that each of these players had whilst playing for England under Roy Hodgson. Um, To help you out, I will give you a bit of a range that the highest cap earner was Joe Hart on 46 and the lowest cap earner. Well, there were several, but Tom Heaton, for example, earned one. So uh, that's what you've got to play with. And uh, do play along at home. Let us know at 11 pod how you get on. Uh, This is Roy Hodgson's Play Your Caps Right. So we've got three different lines to play. Uh, We'll start line one. And our first name is Jack Wilshire, who earned 29 caps under Hodgson. And your next player is Stuart Downing. Oh, this isn't so easy because Stuart, Stuart Downing was obviously a left winger in a, in a period where England had a bit of a dearth of talent on the left. Uh, but 29 caps for Jack. I don't, I think Downing was, was definitely Hodgson's favoured left, one of his favoured lieutenants. Gosh, this is a long answer. It is. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm struggling here. I'm going to go lower. It is lower. Two caps. Yes. How many? You, uh, two. Two? <laughs> what? <laughs> if, you, if you're agonising over that, I dread to think what's going to happen next. I'm also uh, concerned that I think of him as one of Roy's favoured lieutenants with two uh, caps. Yeah, he, he loved those two caps. Oh, um, next up, John Terry. Higher. Correct. Six caps. Ooh, that's lower than I would think. Scott Parker. Higher. Correct. Seven. Oh, oh so final one to win the line. Eric Dyer. Lower. It's higher. 11. Oh, no. 11. Yeah, I'm sorry. He didn't win Very disappointing. Next line. John Stones, 10. James Milner. Higher. Correct. 37. Oh. Next, Jake Livermore. Well, he managed Livermore at West Brom. So potentially he turned to him on many an occasion, but I think many is definitely less than 37. He turned to him once. (laughs) Danny Drinkwater. Higher. Yes, three. This is to win the line. Sado Berahino. Lower. Correct. Zero. Well done. Yeah. Oh, he didn't get any caps. Wow. He didn't get any caps. He did get called up to the squad, but you know, has he been called up by like? Is he? But is he from Benin? Uh, he's from Burundi. Burundi. 
There we go. So, uh, yeah, well done, Sado. Third and final line, starting with Ricky Lambert, who could have made it into this squad, frankly, because he, he got 11 caps, all of which were under Roy Hodgson. Next name, Leighton Baines. Higher. Correct, 23. Ooh. Daniel Sturridge. Higher. It's lower, 19. I'm so sorry, Arthur. I thought that was his peak. That was Daniel absolutely rocking it for oh, Liverpool. Man. If you are playing along at home, the uh, the final names on that line, Rob Green. I would say, sorry, is it higher or lower than Sturridge, 19. 19. Rob Green, I would say lower. Correct. One. And Wilfred Zaha. Zero. Oh, no, 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 no. He did have a few, didn't he? Before he'd switched. Yes, higher. Higher, two. He did have two before he oh. switched and they were under Roy. Well done if you got all three. I, I think my takeaway from that was that this is actually the most popular 11 based on caps under Roy Hodgson. So if we play a 4-4-2, it would be Joe Hart in goal, Glenn Johnson, Gary Cahill, Phil Jagielka, Leighton Baines... Midfield, Raheem Sterling, James Milner, Jack Wilshere, Adam Lalana, And up front, Wayne Rooney and Danny Welbeck. And I guess what I was thinking is, that's not a great team, is it? Are we being harsh on Roy? Uh, did he really underachieve with that team? We might be being harsh. I mean, certain of those players were obviously in very good periods of form. Like Adam Lalana was actually playing very well. And I think he never let England down. So... When you look at the centre-back pairing, it's not really that surprising that we were a bit porous. Perhaps we need to look at Roy's England stint with uh, a little bit more respect, maybe. The continuity was starting at the right-hand side of midfield on this. And I'd like to present Sibusizo Zuma. (laughs) <laughs> any ideas uh i i think he was south african yeah very um, good well i think you've you've worked on the basis of them having a president called zuma so you're uh, yeah I, I i think i do recognize the name but i couldn't tell you who he played for yeah his name is sibusizo Wiseman zuma right and he's also known as zuma the puma by okay. the club supporters um, at FC Copenhagen. Oh, right. Uh, where you might not know Roy had a period of time uh, managing. Uh, in Pro Evo Soccer 2009, Puma appears on his shirt instead of Zuma, which I, like, I quite like as well. Love it. That sounds sounds like a really great thing. Yeah. South African clubs, Mighty Par. African Wanderers and Orlando Pirates were his clubs uh, before joining FC Copenhagen in June 2000, uh, shortly after Roy joined them himself. Roy proved an instant success, uh, taking a team that had finished seventh and eighth in the two previous seasons to the Superliga Championship in the 2000-2001 season, the club's first championship since 1993, His team also won the 2001 Danish Super Cup. Zuma, for his part, lit up Danish football for five years, scoring and assisting frequently. He was clearly a cut above 
Uh, in 2001, he was tied for 29th place in the FIFA World Player of the Year award, uh, which is pretty impressive considering the standard of football in Denmark is a bit below the standard of the big five. He helped the club win three Danish titles and was voted into the club's Hall of Fame for his outstanding efforts. Uh, and in particular, I want to draw attention to an absolutely astounding goal he scored in the New Firm match, which is the name that's given to Copenhagen versus Bromby. It was an absolutely insane bicycle kick in their 3-1 win. It was voted Danish Goal of the Year, Superliga Goal of the Decade, and the greatest moment in the history of FC Copenhagen. There was actually a monument unveiled outside the ground in honour of this goal. Oh so I would urge you, please, to um, to go and check it out. It's it's just the, the the poise he has when taking the ball on his chest and then unleashing such a powerful overhead kick. There's times with overhead kicks where you see them loop over the goalkeeper, whatever. This one was an absolute exocet missile into the top corner. <laughs> Zuma. He said about his time at Copenhagen, it's an honour to be here. I love those guys. I love FC Copenhagen fans to death. I'm amazingly happy. It's one of the best days of my life. That was after the unveiling of the monument. But yeah, I think I think we need to we need to think of Sibuzizo Wiseman Zuma as as one of the greats. Good pick, Arthur. And another Roy Hodgson domestic title win. Um, we're racking up quite a trophy cabinet for Roy here on this episode. Alongside Zuma, in the center of the midfield is Yusuf Malumbu. Oh yes, West Brom legend. Yeah, five foot ten grafter from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, your hallmark midfielder who was too good for the championship and found his level in the bottom echelons of the Premier League. Uh, and of course, it was at West Brom where Malumbu encountered Roy. Malumbu had been a key part of West Brom's midfield since their promotion in 09-10, a player who'd quickly adjusted to life in England, having come through the PSG Academy. He had a remarkable season in 2010-11, scoring seven Premier League goals, a fine fantasy football pick, uh, and being named Baggies Player of the Season. And that was the year Roy inherited him. Embroiled in a relegation battle with just 12 games left to play, Hodgson achieved an amazing five wins and five draws, not only keeping West Brom up, but guiding them to 11th, their highest finish for three decades. And Malumbu was a massive part of that. Goals from him helped Hodgson's West Brom to wins against Birmingham, Sunderland, Villa and Everton on that run. Uh, and during that 12-game stint, Malumbu only missed one game, a draw against Wolves. Hodgson had found a perfect match at the Baggies, it seemed, and he was key to ensuring they were boing-boinging between the leagues no more. Uh, in his second season at the club, Hodgson went one better, finishing 10th, and that was what attracted England to secure his services. So I guess I'm left asking, Arthur, was West Brom actually the best match for Hodgson? I think given a little more time, could he have achieved similar to what he did with Fulham? I think in recent years, his stints at, at Crystal Palace, which was pretty good, but pretty unspectacular, and his pretty dismal stint at Watford, albeit that was that was a, a sinking ship that he joined, have sort of slightly tarnished his 
his legacy in the Premier League. Um, obviously, Liverpool was was not ideal either. But his spells at West Brom and Fulham were pretty astounding, actually, what he achieved with those sides. I think they were sides that suited him, mid-table Premier League sides that he he was able to solidify and make into sort of top 10 sides. Well, Malumbu's stock did fall a little after Roy left. He was sent off against West Ham when he picked up the ball, frustrated by a cynical foul, and drop-kicked it straight at Gary O'Neill, uh, a previous eleven player uh, but he forged on and via Norwich, Kilmarnock and Celtic he found himself at Sant Eloy Lupopo in his native DR Congo before retirement last year age 35. Uh, I was interested to know actually having never heard of Sant Eloy Lupopo that actually in, according to the points ranking for CAF qualification um, DR Congo's Liga 1 is considered the fourth best league in Africa and that's above wow. South Africa. So perhaps Malumbu was better than Zuma on that. Which is, out of interest, do you have to hand which is the strongest league? Uh, the strongest league is Egypt, followed by I mean, Morocco and Tunisia. Tunisia, yeah. I was thinking Esperance to Tunis, uh, mm. obviously under under Radi Jaidi, uh, would be... Uh, I'd have some things to say about that. In the centre of midfield, uh, alongside him, it is Jonas Turn. Right. I don't think I know him. I must say, I hadn't heard of him either. Um, and I feel a bit ashamed of myself for not knowing him because this is a 75-cap Swedish international uh, who spent <laughs> seven years as Sweden's captain. Um, I love so that I, you feel ashamed of yourself for not knowing well-capped Swedish midfielders from the 80s. Absolutely, absolutely <laughs> ashamed. I'm going to go and, and self-flagellate later. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I have to say I needed, I desperately needed to shine a light on Roy's time as manager of Malmo in Sweden. I looked through their squads uh, in all the time he was manager there. And I didn't know anyone. So <laughs> I turned to, to Jonas' turn. <laughs> and uh, and here we are. Roy's early coaching career was closely linked to that of his friend, Bob Houghton. They worked together at Maidstone, Strand Rare and Bristol City. And they also both worked in Swedish football at the same time. Whilst Roy was in charge of Halmstad's. Uh, Bob Houghton was in charge of Malmo and actually achieved European Cup success with them, uh, which was astonishing for the time. Um, the pair are credited with transforming football in Sweden and bringing in zonal marking for the first time to Swedish football, uh, implementing a back four uh, with an emphasis on counterattacks. And Roy became manager of Malmo in 1985. And incredibly, he led them to five consecutive league, league championships, wow. two Swedish championships and two, and two Swedish cups. Um, he's still highly appreciated by the club's fans who have unofficially named a section of the stadium Roy's Horner, which means Roy's Corner. Oh, <laughs> Right. Good old Roy's Horner. Right, oh, Roy's Horner. I don't want to hear much more about Roy's Horner. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> um, and Roy's midfield general at Malmo was Jonas Turn. He was 1989 Swedish Footballer of the Year. Uh, and he made a name for himself as a deep-lying playmaker, strong in the tackle, 
uh, covering every blade of grass. Uh, he had that lauded international career for Sweden that I'm so disappointed in myself for not knowing. Uh, and this included leading Sweden to third place at the 1994 World Cup, which was a pretty astonishing achievement. He also played under compatriots Sven Goran Eriksson at Benfica, uh, finishing runner-up in the 1990 European Cup as part of what was known as the Swedish Armada, along with Stefan Schwarz, Mats Magnusson and Glenn Stromberg. He finished his career at Rangers, where he played only 22 games before injury halted his career early. Uh, but that was enough time to score an absolute belter into the top corner against Celtic. Um, which means he will be remembered fondly. I'm glad you've got Jonas Turner in because uh, that achievement from Hodgson at Malmo is absolutely unbelievable. Um, Jonas Turner, part of a real footballing family, is his father, Bo Turn, um, also was a Swedish footballer. Uh, and his son, Simon Turn, also is a Swedish footballer um, who's made caps for Sweden. I'm ashamed oh, to nice. admit I've never heard of. But um, yeah. A, a real footballing family, taking it in turns, if you like, to play for the national team. On the left side, Milan Jovanovic. Mm. No. You must know Milan Jovanovic. I don't think I do. You must know him. A pacey Serbian winger, Arthur, with a decent goal record. Um, he had one oh, was in... he Liverpool? Yeah, Liverpool. Yes. Yeah. 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 He had one in four for his country, um, nearly wow. one in two when at Standard Liège. Uh, he actually had almost all of his success in Belgium, winning four league titles with Liège and Anderlecht, three cups, a Footballer of the Year award and a golden shoe. So actually a really heralded player. And this success translated into one of the more bizarre moments in modern TV history. In October 2011, Jovanovic was mentioned in the Australian soap opera Neighbours, where he was described by Andrew Robinson as one of the greatest soccer players in the world. <laughs> Let's take a listen. Jovanovic? What nationality is that? Serbian. How do you know? Milan Jovanovic. He's one of the greatest soccer players in the world and he's Serbian. It really, it really is very odd. Um, maybe the neighbours scriptwriters were big Belgian football fans because that quality that he speaks of definitely didn't translate over well, to Liverpool. Well, I'm thinking there's, there's quite a lot of Serbian influence in Australia. Yeah, i.e. I, a lot of you know a lot of a lot of international football players with Serbian heritage. I'm thinking potentially he could have a relative in Australia who was like. Look, mate, can you do me a favour? Yeah, uh, you mentioned Milan in your night. I don't, I don't know, but anyway, um, we didn't really see it in in Liverpool. Jovanovic was one of several woeful Hodgson signings during a torrid spell for Roy at Anfield in 2010, which is before the neighbours mention. I should add, uh, this included for Hodgson Paul Konchesky, Christian Paulson who Hodgson had managed at Copenhagen, but was probably the worst of the bunch as far as Liverpool fans were concerned. John Joe Shelby, Raul Moreles, Danny Wilson, Joe Cole and Brad Jones. Hodgson lasted less than six months at Anfield, 
31 matches and a 41.9% win ratio, uh, which was not enough for the Liverpool bosses, despite uncertainty off the pitch. And I guess it leaves you thinking maybe Hudson is at his best when managing a kind of fighting minnow. 41% win ratio isn't actually that appalling. It's not that bad, but it's not title win ratio in terms of Liverpool, who had high expectations. I'm just looking at the league table and they they finished seventh the season before Roy joined. It's not like they should be expecting automatically title winning form. I think that's what comes from being one of the big teams, though, shortly. I mean, I'm not really convinced that any Liverpool fan would think that was good enough. Milan Jovanovic actually had a number of nicknames throughout his career. Uh, he's known in Serbia as Lane. I can't work that one out. I can only think it's derived from his first name, Milan. But yeah, Lane is a bit of a weird one. And he was also known as Snake in Belgium because of his slalom-like movements away from defenders. Um, In Liverpool, he got no such nickname. He played 10 league games, failing to score. Uh, He did score a couple in the cup competitions. He was a player that Benitez had identified, actually, and Hodgson kind of inherited the transfer. So I don't think we can entirely blame his uh, lack of success on Hodgson, but he certainly didn't manage to get the best out of him. And um, so I think our left midfield doesn't show Roy in, in the very best light. Dan setting himself. Moving on to the strike force, um, we have one name that is up for grabs. If you are a regular listener to the show, uh, you'll know that we do ask friends of the show, people in football, people who just really want to get involved in this podcast um, for their suggestions on uh, on who should take a position in our 11. Um, but up front alongside that choice will be Stefan Chapuzat. A classic name from the 90s. An absolute classic name from the 90s. Um, He was nicknamed Chappie, which I quite like. Oh, like that. Yeah. Yeah. He played in a glorious era for Borussia Dortmund. He collected consecutive uh, Bundesliga titles in 1995 and 96, as well as the Champions League in 1997. He was also Roy's trusty marksman during his spell in charge of the Swiss national side. Switzerland had not qualified for a major tournament since the 1966 World Cup, and Hodgson took the Schweizer Nati to the 1994 World Cup. Losing only one game during qualification, Chapuisat scoring six uh, from a group that included Italy, Portugal and Scotland. They finished a point behind Italy, and rose to an astonishing third place in the world rankings, uh, which is incredible for a nation of their size. They made it out of their group in the USA, uh, but lost to a strong Spain side in the knockouts. He also led them to Euro 1996, but left before the tournament began because he wanted to pursue other other management jobs because Roy's list of managerial appointments was so hefty, he needed to make it even heftier. His national side included Bayern Munich's Alan Suter, uh, Newcastle's Mark Hottiger, 
Does that ring a bell? It does a bit, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the talented but enigmatic Syriaco Sforza, who is best described probably as a 90s Zerdan Shakiri. Right. Uh, so really kind of frustrating, has all the tools, but to really kind of slightly flatters to deceive at times. Chapuzat also played under Roy at Grasshoppers towards the end of his career. His stats are, are pretty insane. 106 goals in 228 Bundesliga matches, to his credit. Over 100 caps for Switzerland. Um, he was also voted Swiss Footballer of the Year four times in 92, 93, 94 and 2001. And voted in 2003 as the best Swiss player of the last 50 years. Do you think he'd still be considered so? Or, or do you think anyone in the latest crop could uh, could come close to toppling him there? No, I don't I don't think so. I think Chapuzat is a hugely underrated player um in football history. Uh, obviously he also played in that Champions League final for Borussia Dortmund. Um mentioned I think in the unlikely Champions League finalists 11. We talked about Paul Lambert there. So um he's he, he's quite decorated as well. I I just think it was maybe slightly before our time. And because he never played in the Premier League again, he's he's not well known to us English bods. I that never played in the Premier League thing. I I had I did a double take because for some reason I associated him with that late nineties Newcastle side. Ah. I could just I could see him playing alongside Stefan Guivash. Yeah, I was gonna say Stefan Guivash, yeah. <laughs> Similar vibes. Similar vibes. But this was an exceptional dribbler, a hard worker. And I think just incredibly devoted to the cause of playing for his nation. Brilliant stuff, Arthur. We're on to up for grabs. Which guests have we got in today? Um, we start with Nima Tavale Rudsari, uh, an Italian football pundit and expert, a big name in Italian football journalism. He was the founder of SempreInter.com, and you may have heard him before as well as the co-host of the Italian football podcast. Do check that out at ItaFootPod, at ItaFootPod. Who is Nima going to nominate for our Ode to Roy? The player that I immediately thought of when when you guys asked me to bring up a striker that that Roy has... um as coached as his number one uh, to, to be in his top 11. It has to be Brazilian Ronaldo um, because he did coach him at Inter during his second chen- tenure at the club as a caretaker coach. Uh, and his very first game in charge is the one that stands out for me as well at the Stadio Olimpico against Zdenek Zeman's Roma, um, which Inter win 5-4 after Ronaldo and Zamorano score a brace. Um, Ronaldo opens the scoring, assisted by Baggio, of course. Baggio assists Zamorano, Totti from the penalty spot, Zamorano again by Zanetti. And then Roma hit two back in the early early, uh, second half before Ronaldo scores, assisted by Zamorano. And then Totti turns provider for Di Francesco before Cholo Simeone, uh, the Atletico Madrid manager today, uh, wins it for for Inter. But that game is, is so special for many reasons. It was crazy. And it was also officiated by Colina, the one and only. Uh, but yeah, Roy coached uh, Ronaldo for a very brief period of time. And, and that's why I think, given that the level and quality of Ronaldo, uh, he has to, Brazilian Ronaldo, the real Ronaldo, he has to be on this list. Well, that has just blown my mind. I had no idea that Roy Hodgson had managed Ronaldo Nazario. <laughs> what is that? 
What is that? I mean, the things that he would have taught Ronaldo in that period of time. I, it's mental. I mean, to go from Ronaldo to Diamante camera feels quite an insane fall. But that's Roy. Roy did everything in his 46-year career. Uh, another guest, Arthur? Another guest is a third colleague of mine to appear on this podcast now. It's Jim Rainford, um, who's an absolute legend. Uh, he's a Mancunian, a big United fan, and a superb insurance broker at Miller Insurance. <laughs> Are you endorsing him? Is this is this a, like a LinkedIn endorsement? Oh, I, I endorse him uh, all day long. Go, Jim. And let's see who Jim's nominated. Here's my selection in my old to war. I've gone with the striker Eric Neverland, once at Manchester United with amazing stats on Championship Manager. Then under Woy's watchful eye at Fulham. Bit of an unusual one, bit of a poor man's Harland, if you will. But yeah, great name. Eric Nevland. Yes, Eric Nevland on <laughs> Roy's Fulham career and also a former player of his at Viking as well. So um, a great pick. Yeah, I, I love it when you introduce someone as a, a big Manchester United fan and then they, they nominate a Man United player. But when it's Eric Nevland, <laughs> I, I think we can definitely forgive that. This poll is going to be on Twitter at 11pod where you can vote. I'm going to throw a third name in there, Arthur. David Dimichele. Yes. Where did Roy manage him? Well, uh, Udinese. What? Yeah. Roy managed him? Uh, I don't Dim- think I even saw that when I looked down the list of clubs. Yeah, really weird stint, actually. Um, Dimichele himself was an Italian football journeyman. In his career, he played for Ludigiani, Foggia, Salernitana, Udinese, Regina, Palermo, Torino, Lecce, Chievo and Lupa Roma. Uh, And he also won six caps for Italy in the mid-noughties. But in 2001, he was playing for Udinese and Hodgson left Copenhagen to take on a new challenge back in Serie A. Learned from his time at Inter, if you will. He did okay, a mixed bag, 17 games and a 41% win ratio. He did interchange David Dimichele and Vincenzo Iachinta uh, alongside the more experienced Roberto Muzzi up front and both chipped in with the odd goal. But ultimately, Roy's mouth somewhat rarely would get him in trouble. Newspapers quoted him saying, obviously, I'm very happy to be back at this level of football, but I could have chosen a better club to come to. It's an extremely strange club. Hodgson denied the comments, but the Udinese board were distraught and sacked him with immediate effect. So um, this is really the only time in Hodgson's career that he has stepped out of line and, and discipline has got the better of him. Dimichele, meanwhile, he'd leave the club for Regina. And actually, there was one destination in England that Dimichele played at, his only one outside of Italy. Do you remember that one, Arthur? No. West Ham United. What? Yeah, he was the foil to Dean Ashton in the 2008-2009 season. There we go. He's constantly shocking me, Di Michele. Yeah, there we go. And my nomination for this poll is Ifan Akoku. Oh, wow. That that was a fantastic pronunciation as well, Arthur. I would have said Ifan Akoku, but... Yeah, I think that's probably Ifan right. Ifan Akoku is also great. 
Afinokoku. Afinokoku definitely rings off. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Effin was somewhat of a late bloomer by modern standards. He began his professional career at the ripe old age of 23. Mm. After signing for third division Bournemouth under Harry Redknapp, this striker was recruited to bolster Norwich City's Premier League title tilt, in the process becoming the first Nigerian to play in the fledgling Premier League. Despite scoring twice in the remaining six fixtures, Norwich ultimately couldn't last the course and settled for a place in the UEFA Cup. Effen had a habit of scoring significant goals and setting milestones. He was the scorer of Norwich's first goal in European competition versus Vitesse Arnhem, and he notched four goals in a 5-1 away route of Everton, the first time anyone had scored more than three in a Premier League game. Uh, and he was also part of Nigeria's squad at USA 1994, their first World Cup. He moved to Wimbledon, where he was steady but unspectacular before game time began to dwindle. And Roy offered him an opportunity to head to Switzerland under his tutelage, and he took it. 500k was the transfer fee, uh, and he was signed by Grasshoppers. They are a team of the upper class of Zurich versus the working class FC Zurich. They have a proud history, having won 27 titles, uh, but are wilting in comparison to their neighbours these days. Uh, His first season in Switzerland was very successful. He scored 16 goals in 21 games, uh, although he did fail to pick up any silverware. He played a further seven games and scored three goals before eventually returning to England on a free transfer. Roy wasn't at Grasshoppers for long, but I, you definitely could argue it was it was a blot on his career. Uh, fourth place finish, uh, bearing in mind they won the title in two of the next three years. Akoku was one of the few English-born players that Roy took abroad with him. Uh, I would say he tended to harvest local talent uh, wherever he played. It surprised me actually looking at all his clubs that few, you know, that that the not more English players played. Uh, for Roy in the foreign leagues. Did it surprise you as well? It did. I mean, there's the odd name like Paulson, um, like Hent on show that we mentioned earlier that kind of crop up at a number of clubs and Hodgson's taken with with him over the years. But actually... But Honshaw's not Honshaw's not English. No, that's very true. Good point. <laughs> I'll start that one again. No, you're right, Arthur. <laughs> Right, who's on the bench, Ben? Any names? Yeah, on the bench, I've gone for Martin Darling, a Swedish striker who joined Roy at Malmo and Blackburn. Uh, according to Wikipedia, in his prime, Martin Darling was considered one of the world's best strikers. Really? Was he? I barely heard really? of him. But there we go. Um, Martin Darling. Sorry, is that his Wikipedia saying that? Yeah. He's definitely edited his own, own Wikipedia. Yeah, of course he has. You would, you would, wouldn't you? Classic Martin. Uh, and on the bench for me, I'd just like to uh, to have Chris Sutton as yes. a, an impact striker coming on, uh, obviously Roy did manage Blackburn, and um, and and Chris was a, an effective strike. 
component strike components yes i mean that that really rolls off the tongue doesn't it we've got a strike component force on the bench we do do you want to run us through the team then let me do that uh in goal lenart leung at right back petri passanen center back stefan oncho and breda hangerland left back alessandro pistoni then across the midfield it's sibasiso zuma uh, we've also got Yusuf Malumbu, Jonas Thurn, and on the left side, Milan Jovanovic. And up front, it will be Stefan Chakwizat and a choice of yours on Twitter. Thank you very much for listening and all the best for your retirement, Roy. Or will he be back? Is Willie be back on the bench as well? <laughs> he, was, he was a player that <laughs> Hodgson, t- Hodgson t- t- took to grasp. <laughs>